Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. We have, uh, as our text this morning, a really beautiful passage from Peter, who, uh, despite the simplicity of the man himself, occasionally reaches to rhetorical heights and gives us words that not only contain uh, stimulating doctrine, but also speak to our hearts. And this is in 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to begin with verse 4 and continue through verse 8. Peter writes these words, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would make it sharp and powerful and and speak to us deep down. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. The reason I say that this is a beautiful passage is because it contains a, a beautiful metaphor. When Peter talks about Jesus, he describes Jesus as a living stone. And he says, that we, as we come after him, are living stones as well. Living stones built into a house, a place, a dwelling place for God. Following Jesus means becoming a living stone in Peter's terms. We've been talking about, since the beginning of, of this book, the way in which believers in Jesus Christ are God's chosen exiles. You remember at the very beginning of the letter when Peter addresses his audience, he speaks to them as the elect exiles, the chosen exiles. And in that idea, there's a kind of tension, a kind of paradox. You have on the one side, rejection. The idea of being a sojourner, an exile, a person who doesn't belong. And on the other side, chosenness, a person who has been loved and chosen, who has been uh, made to belong, so to speak. And that tension, that paradox that we find in the lives of believers between rejection and chosenness, it's not original to us. It's actually a characteristic of Jesus as well. Jesus is God's original elect exile. And Peter says that the living stone, Jesus, is, is the example that we're meant to follow. He tells us two things about Jesus. He says, you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Rejected by men speaks to the sense of exile. Chosen and precious speaks to the sense of chosenness, of election. And as you come to him, as you come to Jesus, you become 
like Him. The Spirit works in you to make you like Him. In other words, the life of Jesus is a kind of blueprint for the life of His disciples. This is an important point for us to make because it protects us, or at least it should protect us, against false expectations. We should never find ourselves in the situation where we think, well, because I believe in Jesus, because I've, I've accepted Jesus, now life should start getting better for me. Life should get good for me. Things should go the way I want them to go. Because that's what happens to people who follow Jesus. Easy antidote against that assumption. Look at the life of Jesus and how that went. Right In the life of Jesus, there was privation. There was suffering. There was rejection. And those who follow after him should expect to have those things in their lives. Jesus was rejected by men. Jesus was rejected by those who had been told to expect him. We too should expect a little rejection. But the other side of that is that just as Jesus was rejected, he was in the sight of God chosen and precious. And the same is true for us as well. We are in Christ. We're not only rejected by men, we are precious and chosen in the sight of God. When you think about being made into the image of Jesus, being made a living stone like him, there are a lot of ways in which we follow the example of Jesus. But the big one that Peter points to has to do with priesthood. This was the theme of the book of Hebrews. When we preached through Hebrews last year, we saw over and over again the idea of the priesthood of Jesus being emphasized, that Jesus is our great high priest. Not only is he the high priest, though, he is also the sacrifice. He's the priest who offers himself up for the atonement of our sins. And now Peter says that we ourselves experience a similar kind of trajectory, that we ourselves are being built up along similar lines. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He builds us up into a spiritual house, into a kind of tabernacle, a temple, a dwelling place for himself. And in that tabernacle, we are priests, a kind of chosen priestly tribe. If you remember, in the tabernacle of old, in the temple of old in the Old Testament, there was a tribe within the tribes, the special priestly race, so to speak, the tribe of Levi. These were the people who served in the temple. We are made into a holy priesthood after the fashion of Jesus. And we offer spiritual sacrifices, sacrifices of praise, that because they're made through Jesus are acceptable to God. This is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation this year. So it's appropriate, I think, to reflect on what was meant during the Reformation by this idea of the priesthood of the believer. And here you see an expression of that idea. Peter is not saying that Jesus is working in the church to build us all into the church, and some of us he's singling out and making those people a little higher than the rest, making them into priests. So within the body of Christ, there is this special uh, race, this special tribe of, of ordained ministers, and they are like the priests of old. 
Instead, He speaks to us all as believers. And says that all of us as believers are being made into a holy priesthood. All of us as believers are making these spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God because they're made through Jesus Christ. This is not the the special work of some elite group within the church. This is for all of us. This is what he does for all of us. All of us, if we believe in Christ, are being made into priests after his example. Just as Jesus, as our great high priest, sits at the right hand of God and makes intercession for us, his church, as, as his chosen exiles, makes intercession for the life of the world. We pray not only for ourselves, but we pray for the community that God has placed us in. We pray not only for our fellow believers, our co-religionists, but for all. We lift everyone up to him. We beseech on behalf of everyone. It is our priestly calling. It is our priestly duty. If we're going to be living stones like Jesus. Living stone is an interesting expression uh, because stone doesn't live. Stone doesn't live. Living stone, it it doesn't make much sense except poetically, like rhetorically. It's a beautiful expression because it encompasses two things that that are, like chosen exile, a little paradoxical. Maybe more than paradoxical, a little bit impossible. Living stone. It's interesting, when Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, talks about regeneration, He talks about the saving work of the Holy Spirit inside of us. He uses this idea to convey uh, the power of it. He describes regeneration as God taking by the power of the Spirit a heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. The thing you can know about a heart of stone is it doesn't beat. It doesn't live. It's a powerful metaphor because it conveys to us just how dead we are in sin. Like To be dead in sin is to have a heart of stone in your chest where there ought to be a heart of flesh. I often will say that, that like the Grinch, my heart is two sizes too small. But it's still flesh. It still beats. Right? There's still a little compassion and sympathy that I can muster up. But a heart of stone has none of that. Right? It speaks to a powerful deadness. So when you speak of a heart of stone being renewed into a heart of flesh, the thing you're talking about is the power of the Spirit that does that kind of work. Like how does stone come to life? Only by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, when he wants to astonish the Pharisees, to blow their minds, uses this same kind of language. The triumphal entry as Luke recounts it in Luke chapter 19, remember when the Pharisees rebuke Jesus' followers because they're praising Him, they're singing hosannas to Him, they're offering worship to Him as He enters Jerusalem, and you should not worship creatures, only the Creator. So in their eyes, this is blasphemy, and they call it out. And Jesus doesn't dispute with them. He doesn't say, well, technically you're right. You shouldn't worship Uh, Creatures, only the Creator, but I actually am 
fully God and fully man. And so what you see here, though it appears to be blasphemy, is in fact absolutely right. He could say those things. He doesn't say those things. Instead, he looks around and he says, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Which kind of derails the theological argument. Jesus, I mean, I know it's the ancient world and we don't know a lot about geology, but, but we know one thing, stones, they don't have voices. They don't cry out. Rocks don't say things. The power of the metaphor is in its impossibility. Jesus is saying, like on this day, as the one by whom all things were made enters into Jerusalem, he will be worshipped. And if the human beings made in his image don't worship him, well, the rocks won't stand for it. And they'll cry out. It speaks to something powerful. This idea that, that the stones would suddenly take on the characteristics of life. And here's the same. Here's the same. Living stone. Living stone. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we are given hearts of flesh. We become living stone. What once was dead becomes alive. We cry out in worship, offering sacrifices of praise. But stone, in this context, there's another aspect to the metaphor. Stone is a building material. Stone is something you make buildings out of, structures. In 1 Corinthians 10, we learn that Jesus was the rock that gave water in the wilderness. That Jesus was there in the wilderness in the Old Testament. The the water that the people drank, that came from Christ. The rock was Christ, Peter says. And now we see that that rock, though it was rejected by men, has become the cornerstone, the foundation on which God is building His church. The whole weight of the church rests on the shoulders of Jesus. He's the cornerstone. And if we're in Jesus, we too are stones. We too are stones built up, laid one on top of the other to form a structure, a house for God. Each one of us is a part of that house that spiritual house, that structure. Yet, we are not inanimate objects. We're not just placeholders in a wall. Instead, we're living stone. We don't just make up the structure. We perform the service within the structure. We do the work of the priests within the temple, in addition to being that temple ourselves. If Jesus is the cornerstone, then we are the the rock that rests on Him. As Peter says, though, the same rock that is the cornerstone is also a stumbling block. Same rock. The same rock, Jesus, is a cornerstone, but also a stumbling block. Peter says, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. That first quote is from Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And yet, that same stone, quoting Isaiah 8, Peter says, it is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So the same message 
brings life to some and death to others. There's only one gospel, and yet the effects of the gospel are as different as night and day. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 15 and 16, Paul says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. So we are the aroma of Christ. We're the smell of Christ. But what Christ smells like to some is death. The fragrance of death to those who are perishing. But to others, the fragrance of life. And this is what he's getting at in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when he says the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. There aren't two different words. There's not two different gospels. There's one gospel, one Christ being proclaimed. And yet he sounds, he smells entirely different to those who believe and to those who reject him. To those who come to him in faith, Jesus is the cornerstone. To those who do not believe, he's a stumbling block. He's an offense. This is the the full passage that Peter quotes from Isaiah 8. He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. We looked at that passage in December when we were looking at Emmanuel passages that predicted the coming of the Messiah. And this is one of those difficult prophecies. Because everyone is meant to be looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And then Isaiah, as he describes the coming of Messiah, makes him sound not so good. Not just a cornerstone, but a rock that you can trip over. You could be snared and taken. You could fall and be broken. Now, this question of of Jesus' rejection is a really important one for Peter, just as it was for Paul. Because they're proclaiming Christ as the Messiah. Christ is the one who was promised, and there's a historical difficulty with that claim, which is Jesus came to Israel and they rejected him. They didn't just reject him, they put him on trial, they condemned him, and they executed him. Jesus seems to have failed. There was supposed to be a king who was coming, a Messiah who was promised, who was going to restore the fortunes of the kingdom, establish his kingdom forever, And everybody said, okay, Jesus is that guy, and then he was killed. That seems to be a failure of the plan of God. But what Peter is doing is he's pointing back to prophecy and saying, no, the rejection of Jesus is not the failure of God's plan. It's actually part of the plan. They disobey, Peter says, as they were destined to do. This passage in Isaiah 8 is the same passage that Paul quotes in Romans 9 when he's trying to understand the implications of Israel's rejection of Christ. Go back and understand why this took place. Why, when the gospel came to people who should have received it joyfully, why did they reject it? And he sees in this, too, part of the plan. The rejection that Peter is speaking of 
When he says Jesus was rejected by men, is Jesus' condemnation and his death. The paradox is that the condemnation and death that was meant to thwart his plan, that was meant to stop him, right, the death that was engineered not just by his, his physical enemies, but by his spiritual ones, the Gospel authors tell us, that death actually was the means by which he became the cornerstone. It was the very effort to snuff him out, to kill him, that led to his victory over death. It was part of the plan. Rather than thwarting God's plan of salvation, those who killed Jesus unwittingly advanced it so that he could bring life to those who receive him in faith. Jesus is preached, some receive him in faith, others reject him. The same truth saves one and condemns another. You see the same kind of thing happening at the Lord's table and the Lord's Supper. And one of the things we do when we celebrate the Lord's Supper is we talk about who should come forward and who shouldn't. And it seems like an exclusive, elitist kind of thing to do. Like, why would you say, oh, no, this is for you and this isn't for you? Well, the reason we do that is because Paul does it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul fences the table. Right? He rebukes the church in Corinth. And he says it's possible to partake unworthily. And that when you do that, you don't just mess up the ritual, but you actually uh, drink and eat condemnation to yourself. This is 1 Corinthians 11. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. When we fence the table, we don't do it to be exclusive or elitist. We do it to prevent those who shouldn't drink judgment on themselves from doing so out of ignorance. The same table. Our standards say that this is not a mere ritual. The Westminster Confession teaches that that the promises that are, are signified here are actually received. Like the benefits are actually received by those who drink of the cup and eat of the bread by faith. When you receive by faith This really does become a means of grace that God uses to build us up in faith. When you receive in faith, those things are true. When you receive unworthily, you don't believe, or you harbor in your heart unrepentant sin, then actually the same thing that brings grace to one brings judgment to another. It has to do with how it's received. The gospel is the same. Gospel is the same. We don't change Christ. We don't change the gospel so that more people will accept him. You don't like this one, try that one. All we can do, we're bound to do, is to preach Christ crucified and to pray for the awakening of the hearer's heart. We long for Christ talked about this before, the way that our longings shape us. 
And I think there's, there's a point in this passage this morning that speaks to a particular longing, an important longing, certainly one that I have felt. In verse 5, Peter says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. And that speaks to me. That speaks to a longing that I have for a better church. We have a friend, Amy, that we traveled with last summer. And Amy was on a spiritual quest. As we traveled, everywhere we went, she would go to the nearest cathedral and visit the cathedral to take in the architecture, to to see uh, the, the beauty of the building. And we talked about the motivation for this quest, and and it was interesting. Um, She's grown up in the church, but she's grown up in a really sort of low church, uh, sort of, you know, practical, utilitarian kind of church, kind of church that that meets in office buildings rather than cathedrals. Not naming any names. And as a result of that, she felt a sort of uh, longing inside. Like she felt like there was something that, that she had missed out on. Something transcendent. Theologians will often talk about transcendence and eminence, which are just fancy words. Uh, we're talking about up there and down here. Uh, transcendence is up there. So when we talk about Jesus as as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the one by whom all things were made, we're talking about him in very transcendent spiritual terms. But when we talk about him as incarnate, the word who becomes flesh, who is fully man, we're talking in a more imminent way, a more down here way. And in a lot of our churches, we tend to focus a lot on the imminent, on the down here. Right? We spend a lot of time talking about the ways in which Jesus is just like you. He's your buddy. He's your friend. He's just a guy who wants the best for you. He wants what you want for yourself even more than you want it. Whatever your wishes are, Jesus wants those things for you even more. He wants to give you everything that you want. That's who he is. He's right here with you. And there can be some good in that, but if you grow up hearing only that, then something inside you is awakened to this other side. Right? You find yourself longing for the transcendent. And that's where Amy was. And, and visiting the cathedrals and looking at this sort of otherworldly architecture, she felt herself uh, transformed in a way, drawn into something higher, into a deeper understanding of God. The architect Thomas Gordon Smith talks about this phenomenon. He's a Uh, an architect who's known for the revival of classical architecture, especially in uh, church architecture. He says that the church building, whether we like it or not, is a kind of visual proclamation. It says something about us. And most of our churches now are pretty utilitarian. They're, They're big boxes. Something really practical about that, you can pack people in very efficiently, and they're cheap to build, that sort of thing. It's not the way they used to build churches, though. In uh, medieval villages, nobody sat around and said, we should build a giant box because we can fit more people in it that way. Instead, they spent generations sacrificing building buildings as a kind of uh, theology in stone, meant to proclaim or represent what it is they thought. Thomas Gordon Smith would argue that we still do that, whether we realize it or not, that, that in our utilitarianism, in our our uh, practicality, we actually do say something 
about our theology as well. That we visually manifest the imminence that leads some of us to long for something more. Long for a greater sense of transcendence. Like I said, this quest for transcendence is one I sympathize with. Some people find it in buildings. Other people find it in liturgy. Some people find it um, in, in tradition, whatever it is. That, that, that sense that speaks to you of something higher seems more churchly. And yet, I think while the quest is good, oftentimes the destination isn't. Because I think a lot of times we fix ourselves not on the transcendent, but on like, like the more beautiful imminent. You think about it this way. We look at our shabby imminent buildings, and we say to ourselves, I would feel closer to God in a nicer imminent building, which isn't the point of the longing that is placed within us. Like God isn't saying, build me a nicer building. If you go back in the Old Testament and you look at the way in which the temple came about, it's very interesting. You may have it in your mind that God was just super anxious about getting himself a temple. He thought, hey, here's Jerusalem. I'd like to have the best temple of all the gods. I want it to be the most impressive structure. And, and, and it's really important to me that I have the nicest possible temple. That's not at all the way the temple came about. The temple came about because David, King David, felt guilty. He built himself a house of cedar, a fancy house of cedar. And when he looked outside, he saw the tabernacle that God had commanded to be built. It's a tent. And he thought, ah, God lives in a tent and I live in a nice cedar building. That doesn't seem right. I know what I'll do. I'll build God a nicer house. David goes to the prophet Nathan. And like a lot of churchmen, Nathan sees no problem at all with building a nice church building. This sounds like a wonderful plan. You're a man after God's own heart. You do it. And then Nathan has a dream. After he's given the green light to David, God comes to Nathan in a dream, and he says this, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David wanted to build God a nice house, and God says, no, I'll build you a house. And it wasn't the kind of house 
that he thought it was. David clearly thought that the promise was, your son Solomon will build my temple. And Solomon does, in fact, build a temple. When you look at the way that that happens, though, it's very interesting. God doesn't command Solomon to do it. Solomon kind of runs with it. And then God, at the end of the process, says, okay, I'll come to your temple, but you should obey me. You should follow after me. God's concern in the temple is obedience, not having a nice house. Because the house that God has promised to David isn't the temple in Jerusalem. The house he's promised is this one. The house that he's promised to build is this spiritual house, the church. The church made of these living stones, his people. This is from Edmund Clowney, who's a great theologian expositor on this passage. He says, to speak of a growing temple of living stones stretches an Old Testament figure to convey New Testament reality. The figure of the tabernacle or temple pictured the presence of God among his people. God's tent was pitched in the center of Israel's wilderness camp. In the land of promise, God made the temple at Jerusalem his dwelling. God was there among his people. They belonged to him and he to them. When the Word became flesh and tented among us, the symbol became reality. The God of glory came to dwell with us. We have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only, John testifies. The true temple is Christ's body. We are united to Christ. The living stones are joined to the cornerstone. In that way, the church becomes the true house of God. We do have a longing for transcendence, and sometimes that expresses itself in a desire for more beautiful things, things that seem to convey richer truths than the simpler things do. Uh, The desire is good, but oftentimes we miss the significance of it. What God is calling us to isn't uh, to build Him a nicer house. He's calling us to be His house, His spiritual house, His dwelling place where God and man commune. You are a living stone. You may be rejected. You may be despised, not respected by men, but in God's sight, you are precious and chosen. Believe in Jesus and you won't be put to shame. You'll be united to the cornerstone. God will dwell with you. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.